Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 12. One of the most important questions that we can ask is what is it that marks a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ? That's our mission, isn't it? To make disciples of Jesus Christ? What is a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ? I I can't think of a more practical question for Christians. But even if you're not yet a Christian and you're here this morning, maybe exploring Christianity, exploring the claims of Christ, exploring what the Bible says about the Christian faith, I think this is a very important question for you too. If you were to believe What would you be signing up for? A very important question. And we have a very clear answer in our passage this morning, which teaches us that a maturing disciple will be marked by love. A love for God. A love for one another in the church. And a love for those who are outside of the church. But before we dive in, we need to take a step back to see where our passage this morning fits within the larger argument that Paul began making last week. We came last week to a major turning point in Romans. Beginning in Romans 12, there's a notable shift from a theological explanation of the gospel to a very practical application of the gospel to our lives. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or better acceptable worship. As we learned last week, this passage is a call to holistic worship, to worship God with all that you have in all of life. And Paul says this is reasonable worship. It makes perfect sense for those who have been delivered out of a life of false worship of idols. For those who have been saved from the wrath of God are now living under the grace of God. It only makes sense that all of our lives would be completely and fully given over to the worship of God. We also learn, by way of review, that we don't have to guess what a life of worship looks like. Verse 2 tells us it's a life not conformed to the world, to the world's mold, to the world's ways, Instead, it is a life transformed by the renewal of our minds. A renewed way of thinking. God's way of thinking. A way that is in line with God's will for our lives. And what does it mean to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds? Paul spells that out for us too. For example, in verse 3, It means not thinking highly of oneself, but thinking humbly. 
about ourselves. And this new way of thinking leads to a new way of living. So we saw in verses 6 to 8, a new way of serving within the church of God. Well, this pattern that we picked up on last week continues in our passage this morning. This, not this, but this contrast. This, not conformed to the pattern of the world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind contrast. It continues, only now it's applied to love. And what Paul shows us is this life of worship, which is the umbrella under which all of his commands fall, this life of worship is a life of love. Those who know God's love will love God, and in turn, they will love others. Paul also shows us that this life of love is a revolutionary love. There's nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in the world. But this kind of love is very much like the God who loves us. So listen for this contrast. Listen for this radical way of thinking about love as we read God's Word. Would you please stand? Beginning in verse 9. This is a litany, a litany of commands, over 20 commands. So let them sink in. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My sermon in a sentence is the life of worship is a life of revolutionary love. Verses 9 to 13, if you're looking at the way this passage is laid out, clearly addresses love for those in the body. Verses 17 to 21, he addresses love for those who oppose the body. And in the middle, in verses 14 to 16, he mixes it up and includes both groups. 
to divide my time, I'm simply going to talk about love for those in the body and then move on to love for those who oppose the body. And I'll be pulling verses 14 to 16 in as I go. But throughout this, I have two goals that I want you to bear in mind. I want you to learn some very practical ways to love as you live a life of worship. But I also want you to see how revolutionary this life of love is, how very unlike the world it is, and how very much it is like our God. Let's begin with our love for one another in the body. The argument I want to make is that our love for one another in the body is revolutionary. And to make my point, to make it very clearly, I have eight subpoints. That's right. Eight subpoints just for this one main point. It, it, there's a list of commands, and I knew of no other way um, to make this clear to you to see how love for one another in the body is revolutionary. Let's get on with it. First, revolutionary love is not hypocritical. Verse 9, Paul says, let love be genuine. The word translated as genuine is literally not hypocritical. The word hypocrite means, as Pastor Mike says, to speak from down under. It comes from the ancient theater. In the ancient theater, actors wore masks. And as they spoke their lines, they spoke from down under the mask. So hypocrisy is speaking from under the mask. And Paul is saying that our love for one another should be without a mask. We shouldn't be merely putting on a show. Our love needs to well up from inside of us and be real. To be genuine. He'll go on to tell us what genuine love looks like in the verses ahead. But before he does that, he makes a very important qualification to this heartfelt, genuine love. Which leads to the second way a life of love is revolutionary. Revolutionary love holds fast to what is good. Why do I say this is a qualification? Well, you could have genuine love towards someone, sincere, heartfelt love, and use that heartfelt love as an excuse for doing wrong, for doing evil. That's what the sexual revolution has done. It's justified all kinds of evil In the name of love. Love is love, they say. And that leads into all kinds of sexual sin. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality. Paul is saying, this is not love. Not genuine love. Any action that is evil, by definition, is not loving. And it is certainly no way to worship God. God's revolutionary love does not throw out all moral restraints. It hates evil. What does love do? 
It hates something. It hates evil. And it clings tightly to what is good. By definition, love seeks the good of another. Committing sin, leading others into sin, is never for the good of another. It may be the kind of love that the world patterns, but not the kind of love transformed by the renewal of our mind. Third, revolutionary love is a household love. It's a family love. Last week we saw that Paul transformed the language of worship from the New Testament. The language that had previously been reserved for the sacrificial system at the temple by the priests is now being applied to the lives of everyday Christians in their everyday living. Paul is transforming language in verse 10 as well. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. He's combining two Greek words, Philadelphia, which you're probably familiar with, and philostorge, brotherly love and affectionate or familial love. Both of these words were reserved exclusively for talking about your blood relatives, your natural family, but now Paul is using these words to speak of our love to one another in the body of Christ. This is revolutionary. If you want to worship God by renewing your mind, you have to think differently about other believers in the body of Christ. They're not like your family. It's not an analogy. They are your family. They actually are members of the household of God. And if you are in Christ, so are you. So, when you think of them, you must think of them this way. And when you think of them this way, it will lead you to live in a different way. Familial love is devoted love. It's like the love of a parent for their children. A love that nourishes and nurtures, not simply out of duty, but out of deep affection, devotion is driven by a sense that my brothers and my sisters in Christ are dear to me. I'm convinced this may be the most important mind shift we need to make in the church today if we are going to rightly worship God. We rightly hold a very high view of the nuclear family in the evangelical church. Paul wants us also to hold a very high view of the church family. And until we see our way of life together as family life, I don't know that we can live the life that Paul is calling us to live. I was so encouraged yesterday when I spoke with Kathy Pryor on the phone. She said she's been so blessed, not only by calls and texts from her natural family, but from her church family, both in Olathe and 
back here in Wichita. She knows that she is loved, that she's not alone because she's been cared for like family. This is revolutionary love. Fourth, it honors everyone. Look at the second part of verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. To understand the revolutionary nature of this statement, you have to think of the way that honor worked in the Roman society. Think about it. Would a slave master ever honor a slave? No. And men would rarely show honor to a woman. That's the way honor worked in that society. But now, because of the mercies of God, everybody in the family of God, everybody in the body of Christ should be honored. Men should certainly honor women, and women should certainly honor men. But also those of high social status should honor those of lower social status. Because in the church, we all have the same status. We're all saints. We're all set apart. We're all children of God. Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. This literally reads, lead the way in showing honor. In a world where we honor the rich and famous, Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. Lead the way. And showing honor to everybody in the church without distinction. We see the same kind of thinking in my fifth point. Revolutionary love is not haughty, it's humble. Look at verse 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. Or more woodenly, have the same thinking toward one another. So when you look at anyone in the church, when you think about anybody in the church, you should see them the same way that you see everybody else. They're a member of the body. They're a brother or sister in Christ. That doesn't mean that we're all the same. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same abilities. It doesn't mean that we'll always hold the same opinions. That's not the point. But we are all one And so, therefore, we should think of one another in that way. And if we do that, it means that we will not be haughty, but we will associate with the lowly. And the world's way of thinking, like I've already said, the people with great talents, with a great resume, they're exalted. We talk about them. We want people to know that we know them. But we often ignore everybody else. Paul says that's the world's wisdom. That's wisdom in your own eyes. Paul is calling us to a wisdom from above. A wisdom that sees a level ground at the foot of the cross. Friends, this is revolutionary way of thinking. A way of thinking that needs to be embodied in a way of living 
in the church. A church that sees itself as family, that honors everyone, that lives in harmony with one another, that's not haughty but humble. Only that kind of church can do the sixth thing Paul calls us to. Revolutionary love is happy with the happy and hurts with the hurting. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be happy with those who are happy. Hurt when others hurt. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Revolutionary love not only serves one another, it feels what others feel. If we're operating on the pattern of the world, we'll never rejoice with those who rejoice. When others get promoted or great things happen in their lives, we'll be jealous. If we're operating on the pattern of the world, we won't weep with those who weep. We'll be too focused on our own emotions. Sure, when they weep, we may put on a mask, speak from under that mask, our condolences, but God is calling for a different kind of love. A love that feels what others feel and then enters into their joys, enters into their sorrows with them. That's happy with the happy. That hurts with the hurting. Seventh, revolutionary love doesn't hold back practical help. Help for those in need. Verse 13 highlights both financial needs and relational needs. Financial needs, we read, in the command to contribute to the needs of the saints. That word contribute in Greek is a familiar word to you. It's koinonia. The word translated often is fellowship. But here we see a very practical side of fellowship in the family of God. It takes care of the financial needs of others in the body. This was a mark of the early church in Acts. They had all things in common. They were selling their personal possession to provide for those who were in need. Radical and revolutionary. A way that caught the attention in the eyes of the world. A way of living that was clearly not conformed to the pattern of the world. But a way of living that had behind it a different way of thinking. So you've heard it said, put your money where your mouth is. Maybe it would be appropriate to say, put your money where your mind is. If your mind is renewed, if you see the church as family, if you see everybody as worthy of honor, if you see yourselves soberly in light of God's mercy that He has shown us in His generosity toward us in Christ, if that's where your mind is, then guess where your money will go? It will go towards the needs of others. The other way love is helpful is in hospitality. Not simply offering hospitality, but 
pursuing it. The word hospitality, another Greek word that you may know, is xenophilia. Xenophilia. Literally, love for the stranger. You've heard me say this before if you've been in this church for any period of time. But hospitality in the New Testament is not having your friends and family over for dinner as good as that is. It is, hear me on this, this is distinct, it is making space for the stranger to become a friend. And maybe even to become a part of the family of God. Technology has made it possible for us to be connected to millions of people, and yet, ironically, our society is more isolated than ever. People are lonely, even people in the church. Many people feel like a stranger in the church of God. They need believers in the church to create space in their homes and in their schedules where they can move from being a stranger to being a friend. And so I would encourage you to pursue those who are isolated, to make space for them, maybe even in your lunch schedule this afternoon, to make space for them in your world. So many of you have extended revolutionary love through foster care and adoption. We honor you today. We stand in support of you today. Sorry. But not all are called to this type of hospitality. I hope you don't feel a guilt trip on Orphan Sunday. Not all are called to this. But all are called to some type of love for the stranger, even strangers in this very church. For the sake of time, I had to leave out verse 12. That's why I prayed it earlier. I also skipped over verse 11, but I'm not leaving it out. I just saved it for last because it stands at the very center of these verses. Verse 11 is the engine that powers our love for one another in the body. It reads, do not be slothful in zeal. Or you could translate it, don't be lazy in diligence. It's an interesting way to put it. Don't be lazy in your hard work. Instead, be fervent in spirit. Or I'd like to put the word zealous there. Zealous in spirit. For the word translated as fervent is zeo, where we get the word zealous. It means to boil. The picture here is of somebody who is on fire in their spirit. They have a burning hot flame that motivates revolutionary love in the body. If we're going to love one another 
in the way that Jesus calls us to love one another, in the way that Paul is calling us to, we have to be on fire. We can't be lukewarm. The earnest, eager, energetic love that we are being called to requires diligent, white-hot zeal. But where do we get this zealous fervency? Here's the last thing, but the central thing that I want to say to you about revolutionary love for the body. Revolutionary love burns hot. It burns hot as it's fueled by the Spirit in service to the Son. Where does this burning hot flame that we are called to have come from? Notice verse 11 tells us where it's directed, which gives us a clue. It's directed towards serving the Lord. That word serve, we encountered it in chapter 6, is the word for slave. Remember, we used to be slaves to sin. We used to present our bodies as slaves to sin. But now we are slaves to God. Now we are slaves of Christ. And so because of God's mercy, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Because of God's mercy, we serve the Lord. Right? But how do we do this? Chapter 7, verse 6 tells us how. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. Not out of our own effort. The Spirit lights the flame in our heart. He not only gives gifts to the body, He also gives us a burning hot passion to love the body and to seek its good. To seek its good without hypocrisy because we see that we are family without pride but in humility And with practical help, because we have koinonia, a koinonia that has been created in the Spirit. So this service, this love, what is it? It's worship. Why is it worship? Because it puts on display in our lives the great worth of our great God by putting on display something of His revolutionary love for us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's love. As we love others, it puts His worth on display for all of the world to see. And speaking of the world, let's now turn to the way we're called to love those who oppose the body of Christ. Here's the broad point. Love for those who oppose the body is revolutionary. So both those who are in the body and for those who oppose the body, the love we're being called to is not just love, it's revolutionary love. Why? Well, I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on this point as the last one, to your relief. To keep it simple, I want to look at three things. What in this section are we being called to do? What enables us to do it? 
And what we pray comes from it. So let's begin with what we're called to do. Revolutionary love doesn't get even, but does good. It doesn't get even, but it does good. Verse 17, we're given in the most broad terms the way we should love those who oppose the body of Christ. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. When people persecute Christians, when they oppose our work, when they oppose us, and if we're bearing witness for Christ, they will. There is a great temptation to retaliate. That's the way of the world. When somebody does wrong to you, you do wrong in return to them, or you get even with them. But Paul says, instead, give thought to what is honorable, or literally, what is good, or what is beautiful in the sight of all. So instead of getting even, we do good, and when we do good, people see it. Everybody sees it. It's out there for the world to take notice of. Paul spells out the good that we're called to in verses 18 and in 20. In 18, he says we're to pursue peace with everybody, including those who hate us or who reject the gospel. We don't just say forget them. We seek to pursue peace with them so far as it depends upon us. Verse 20 says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This is the good we're called to do. Jesus said the same. This is revolutionary love. We turn the other cheek. We walk the extra mile. We don't retaliate. We don't get even. We do good. But how's this possible? Isn't this unjust? If we've been wronged, shouldn't those wrongs be put right? At the center of this section, we see what enables us to not retaliate. Revolutionary love leaves judgment in the hands of God. Look at verse 19. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Let me just say that there is a role for retributive justice in this life. We'll talk about it next week in Romans 13. But let me just say, unless you're Jeff Sirius, you're not the judge. God's the judge. God is the one who appoints governments who will deal out retributive justice In this life, we are never to do that. And he is the one who will ultimately bring judgment on all who are not in Christ. It's not our job to to condemn or to retaliate. So one way to avoid it is by knowing that the God of the universe, he's got it. He's on his throne. And he will one day put all things to their rights. But revolutionary love goes much further than this. And I hope we'll go much further than just saying God will deal with them someday. Revolutionary love, lastly, prays. 
that God's judgment will give way to His grace. That God's burning anger will give way to His abounding grace. Back in verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Blessing in the Bible is generally something God does. So is cursing. God's blessing is His gracious favor He bestows on His people in Christ. His curse is His judgment that He brings upon His enemies. So when Paul is calling us to love those who oppose the body, when he calls us to bless and not curse them, he's calling us to call upon God to bestow His grace and favor upon them. Not to call upon God to judge them. He's calling us to pray that in God's mercy, His burning wrath will give way to His abundant grace. Maybe that's why in verse 19, Paul addresses them as beloved. He's reminding us that we have received God's love as an act of grace. While we were enemies, He sent His Son to reconcile us. We should want the same for our enemies. And we should pray to that end. But not only that, Paul seems to indicate that it's actually the good that we do to our enemies, instead of retaliating against them, that may lead to their good. I think that's what he is saying in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, don't succumb to retaliation, but do good and know this. When you do good, that good may overcome their evil. I think that means that that may lead them to Christ. Zicky Sun is preaching in the Chinese congregation today, and he had a helpful illustration for this. I don't know if it's true or apocryphal, but the the story speaks nevertheless. He tells the story of Peter Miller, a pastor in the 18th century who was friends with George Washington. Pastor Miller's worst enemy was a man named Michael Whitman. Whitman hated Miller. Whitman hated all pastors, and he opposed them and got in their way because he hated the gospel as well. Apparently, Whitman also hated America because at some point he was convicted of treason and sentenced to death. When Pastor Miller learned of this, he walked on foot 70 miles to Pennsylvania to talk to George Washington. But he didn't go to Pennsylvania to speak curses against Whitman, to give further evidence against him. Instead, he went to ask Washington to pardon Whitman. When Washington heard his plea, he responded to his friend, I'm sorry, but I can't pardon your friend. 
Miller said, oh no, you don't, you don't understand. He's not my friend. He's my worst enemy. Washington was floored. He said, you walked 70 miles to save the life of your enemy? It amazed him so much that he did pardon Whitman. Whitman and Miller eventually became friends and Whitman became a Christian. Evil was overcome with good. We have received so much mercy from God in Christ. We've been saved from the wrath of God. It only makes sense that we would give our lives in worship to God with all that we have and in every area of our life. And a life of worship involves a life of revolutionary love, a love not conformed to the world, a love transformed by God's way of thinking that is made very clear to us in God's way of loving. The one who sent His only Son to make us children of God is a loving God. It only makes sense that we would love those in the household of God. A God that while we were still enemies, sent His Son to reconcile us to God by His death. It only makes sense that we too would love our enemies. This is our reasonable worship. It's the only way of living that makes sense for those who are Christians. Would you pray with me? Father, transform our minds through the gospel of your Son. Help us to think like you think so that we can live like Jesus lived. For the glory of your great name, for the good of those in the church, for the good of those in the world who are, as of now, far from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.